This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi everyone, it's Connor Boyle here. Before we get into this week's episode, there's something I'd love you to give a try. We've just launched a new online streaming platform, Intelligence Squared Plus. It's packed with over 20 years of our debates and whether you want to tune in live and watch along and ask your questions or watch back on demand, everything is totally ad free and there's endless hours of discussion to dive into. The usual price is £14.99 a month, but we want to give you, our podcast listeners, a special offer to give it a try. For 10 days only, we're offering a subscription for only £10 a month, and the offer ends at midnight GMT on Tuesday 20th December. Get it while you can. So if you want to join the Intelligence Squared Plus community, visit intelligencesquaredplus.com or click the link in the episode description to subscribe and use the discount code MONTH10 or ANNUAL10 to start watching today. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Today on the podcast, we're taking a look at the internet's new favorite toy, ChatGBT. This is some of AI's most impressive work yet, but could the creation of an all-knowing human-like chatbot, a tool which can create answers, emails, poems, stories, and essays instantly, mean that writing as we know it could cease to exist? To explore this question, we're joined by novelist and essayist Stephen March and academic and broadcaster Shahida Bari. Here's Shahida with more. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Shah Hidabari. Whenever new AI technology comes around, first there's marvel and awe, and then we ask ourselves which jobs, professions, and entire skill sets are going to be replaced or potentially erased. Just a few months ago, the artificial intelligence research laboratory OpenAI released DALI 2, an updated version of their AI image generator, prompting graphic designers to ask if this marked the end of their careers. What a designer could spend weeks working on, DALI could instantly conjure up with a prompt in the search bar. And now, while the artists take stock, it appears that it's time for the humanities to panic. A couple of weeks ago, OpenAI unleashed its latest creation into the world, ChatGPT. This new tool has captured people's attention, most particularly in its ability to simulate natural language, language that no one would suspect of having not come from a human. Using an immense amount of data which has been downloaded from the internet, ChatGPT has been programmed to instantly respond to questions and tasks, arguably better and clearer than any human could in the given time. It can write corporate emails and cover letters, TV scripts and poems, even an imaginary Twitter spat between Donald Trump and Shakespeare, yours if you ask for it. 
In the first five days of its launch, ChatGPT reached 1 million users. But while impressive and entertaining, what could this kind of technology mean for the way we learn to write and communicate? What's going to stop students, for instance, asking this incredibly smart search engine to do their homework, write their essays, think critically and communicate effectively for them. I'm sure we would all have wished for a friend like ChatGPT at some point in our education, but what does it mean now that it's here? I'm joined now by novelist, essayist and cultural commentator Stephen Marsh to discuss whether writing is a dying skill, the future of academia and the widening schism between humanists and technologists. Stephen, hello, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you for joining us. This feels like a super interesting and slightly terrifying conversation. You've been playing around with chat GPT over the past few days, along with millions of others. What kinds of things have you been asking of it? Well, I actually haven't used chat GPT because I've been using I've been using GPT three and other modes for quite a while. Like I used a program called PseudoWrite. Um, which was a, sort of a writing software program developed out of OpenAI's GPT-3 almost two years ago now. And then I also use Cohere, which is a large language model in Canada. I mean, one of the things that's interesting about this leap forward is that um, certain brands tend to dominate the conversation. But when you like I've been working at this stuff for like three, four years now, and it was very clear to me that sort of what everyone is seeing with chat GPT right now um, has been very clear to me for at least two years that it would it was going to do all this stuff. I mean, I put into it two years ago, Kubla Khan by, uh, sorry, uh, Kubla Khan by um, Coleridge, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Coleridge, and it finished it in a very complete and credible way. And I was really? like, oh, that's it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. And, and like, you what would, does, you know, what my, does credible mean in this sense? Well, it, I have a PhD in English. If I were uh-huh. to, if you were to tell me that Coleridge had written it, I would assume that he had. Wow! Right? Like, like that, like that it would, that it was absolutely. And if you told someone, "Hey, we found a manuscript with this in it, and Coleridge wrote it," I, I don't really believe anyone would not agree, right? Like, it's very, very, very credible. Um, and so when I saw that, um, I really, and then I was also fooling around with it, getting to do things like complete you know, unfinished manuscripts, literary manuscripts that I was very interested in, continuing writing uh, Mystery of Edwin Drood by Dickens and so on. And it did that in very, very credible ways. So, you know, I knew f- f- at that point, it was only a matter of time before it could figure out the very crude, uh, you know, five paragraph essay that we teach in high school in, in North America and the 1500 word undergraduate essay, which I do believe is just doomed at this point. You've been worried about this for a while, then it sounds like. But does this new chat GPT offer any, is is this a more sophisticated version? Or it's just the more popular version of it. And, and that's the danger of this one. It's both. I mean, like they've obviously channeled it in a very effective way, but it's still the, the it's still chat, it's still GPT-3 based, which is 175 billion parameters. I mean, for example, I got a look at Google's Palm, which is 540 billion parameters, and it can do low-level reasoning. Like, it's freaky. Like, if you explain it to it that, you know, if you have two apples and you add three apples, that's five apples, it can then extrapolate a mathematical reasoning from that, right, Uh, through language, right, through language, not through having calculation input into it. 
And then, of course, you know, GPT-4 is probably right around the corner. I mean, there's lots of rumors swirling about that. It may have more parameters than there are neurons in the brain. Nobody really knows what that means, what that's going to mean. But, you know, I've had my brain sort of blown away about once every two weeks for a (laughs) year with this stuff, right? So, like, it's not – I'm not worried. Like, I mean, I think the undergraduate essay as we know it is going to die. But that's not something that worries me. Like, I actually think this is incredibly exciting and that there's a lot of creative possibilities behind this. I've used it to write fiction. I've used it as a co-author in fiction. Really? uh, That I've published in LA Review of Books here. And, you know, for Lit Hub, I published a entirely auto-generated piece of fiction that was like an idealized love story. Um, I'm using it right now to write prompt fiction. So that'll be like an infinitely regenerative story where it's the same story with the same characters told differently every time. I, I mean, I genuinely feel like my, I got early access to this technology kind of by accident. The people who live in my neighborhood happen to be the people who invented Transformer, which is the T in GPT-3. And I sort of feel like I'm playing around with an electric guitar in like 1952. I just think there's going to be really a lot of exciting things to come out of this. You're going to be our Bob Dylan going electric. Um, but but is there is that with the Coleridge... You're quite like that yeah. analogy, Stephen, I can tell. But with the Coleridge, you, you <laughs> Bill just Haley, explain. I think more like Haley and Bill the Haley. Comets will be closer to it. Bad, <laughs> but, but, early adopter, but good. But, but, but with the Coleridge example, I want to ask you about your own fiction in a moment because that sounds super interesting. Yeah. But with the Coleridge, for people who don't know how the technology works, when you say that it sounded like a perfectly feasible Coleridge, lost Coleridge manuscript when it completed um, the poem Kubla Khan. H- how is it doing that? Is it it's calling up an archive that it knows of Coleridge's work? How is it generating this? Well, I mean, okay, you're going to put me on the spot here. I've talked to the people who've invented this. I've tried my hardest to understand what a transformer is. I just don't want to give the impression that I know what I'm talking about. I've worked really hard. I'm not an idiot. I have a PhD, but like it's I think I understand about 15% of it. First of all, the important thing to know is that it's only, all it is is text prediction software, period. It predicts what is the next word after. That's all it does. And, and that's really important to keep in mind. So the way that it does that is by analyzing language through a supercomputer. In the case of GPT-3, a billion-dollar supercomputer that OpenAI got from Microsoft that analyzes, I mean, in the roughest estimation it would be the patterns in language that lead to more coherent outcomes and itself teaches that over the parameters and that's why the number of parameters makes such a big difference in the coherence of the output so gpt2 was i think it was 30 billion and it could do some interesting stuff but then once it got to 175 billion parameters with with gpt3 it got re- i mean that's where you got the coward stuff And when you get to 540, to me, it's like a completely different level. And then, you know, if we're talking like, and that's why when we get to the next, the next phase of this, which could literally happen next week. I mean, the rumors are that it could drop in December where you're at, I mean, other rumors have it at a hundred trillion parameters or whatever. I mean, I don't know if any of that's true, but that'll be equally as drastic a change. Wow. Wow. Last week, you wrote an essay in the Atlantic titled, The College Essay is Dead. Let's start with with what's so important about undergraduate level essay writing. I mean, do you still think essay writing is important? Look, I make my living basically doing college essays, right? right. Like, I, like I've been doing the same activity since I was about six, fundamentally, right? Because you're an essayist. 
Yeah. Give, give topics. I think about them. I write an opening paragraph, which leads into a thesis statement, which is followed by an argument, which is led, leads to a conclusion, which eases out. I mean, like it's kind of ridiculous, but like it's this, this activity has dominated my entire life. Right. And, um, I do think we use it as a frame for how to learn how to think through things, learn how to make arguments, how to obviously how to research things, but also how to how to phrase things. And, you know, people are like, well, it's just wording. Like I remember someone was arguing with me about this on Twitter and they were like, well, all you're doing is wording. And I'm like, yeah, well, that's my whole life. Like I, I mean, it's been my like you can you can treat that like it's not a big deal, but like putting the the words in the right order is actually quite hard to do and requires quite a bit of like learning how to do it. Right. Like when I say it's going to end the undergraduate essay, I mean, like obviously uh, there are, there are ways of approach to this that are different, but like the, here's an idea. You're, you have a blank page, go and figure out how to fill it with 1500 words of thinking that I think genuinely ended last week. Really? Right. Like there, like there's like, there's no, there's no, there's no blank page. If you want filler, you can absolutely get it. Right. And how much of, how much of undergraduate essays are filler? I mean, I used to be a prof. It was like at least 99% of what I read when I marked papers, when I graded papers was filler. Well, GPT three, just chat GPT just pumps it out. Like, but what, what, but what I'm trying to work out, Stephen, is whether you think that is a, a bad thing if chat gpt is going if the essay died last week because chat gpt is going to fill student essays around the world is that it seems to me you don't think that's such a terrible thing well i i mean you know it's something that i love that is dying right and and certainly something that has shaped me but you know um cursive writing is dying too and like it was very beautiful too and, but, you know, like, I think it's just the way of the world. I mean, what I really, what I'm scared about is that the humanists who have shown so little capacity to adapt to the world as it is coming, will fail once again to adapt to this change and will lead themselves into death once again through apathy and, and their usual blitheringness. I, I say that as one of them. What I'm worried about is the end of that, for sure. You know, the, the essay as we've had it as a form really is not that old, right? Like in the 19th century, all of these colleges, they were all run on oral exams. They were all run on in-class writings. They were like, they were not necessarily written on the essay. Like universities are going to have to adapt in a very big way. It t- certainly take-home exams are pointless. Why would you even do one? When you think about something like um, college admission essays, or in the UK, we talk about personal statements, for instance, is this the end of writing as a kind of gatekeeper and a, a metric for intelligence now? Because it's not no longer yeah. a trustworthy form. What do you think? Well, you and know, I mean, I maybe that's a good thing. Ask, I don't know, Stephen. I think if you're asking people for filler writing, and there's a machine that can do it, like, were those essays ever really an intelligent way to gauge people? Like, I, I, I'm not, I'm not really sure that they ever were. What this, I think, one thing you have to really remember is that ChatGPT three, while very impressive, is not going to replace writing. I, I mean, not, not at all. Like, like in, in no way is it going to do that. But you know, we live in a world where I receive multiple letters a day that start, "Dear Mr. Marsh, you are one of our most valued customers." Right. Like 
why would anyone write that down? That's not a meaningful sentence, but it's just language in a box, right? And that stuff, it, like similarly to like what ChatGPT is going to be unbelievable at is like, I need a contract for a junior uh, assistant. It can write that like that perfectly. That filler garbage language that we are so much of our lives are full of, it's going to replace all of that. I, I think what it will replace is like, in those college admission essays, you will be looking much more at the content than you were looking at the clarity of expression or, or just simply like, oh, this person is fluid in their writing because ChatGPT is perfectly fluid. But also I see it as something that produces a draft that then you then go and edit. I've never found it to produce, you know, work that you can use out of the box. Never. Right. Like it, it, it doesn't have intention. You know, our, our, our language for... It would give you something to work with. Yeah, on. exactly. Like, it, all, it, and I mean, it's unbelievable at that, right? Like, it just, like, write a scene that's that, and it's just an idea. But I wonder um, whether I should I, even I, have written a script for our conversation, Stephen. I should have chat GPT'd it and, and then edited it subsequently. <laughs> of course. Is, this, I, our, is a, this a trick? I'm a bona fide interviewer, and I, and I, I <laughs> yeah. prefer questions. And No, well, one of the things I do want to ask you is, you know, of course, the essay is a form that has been problematized too. I mean, in, in the UK and I imagine in Canada and the US, people talk about the attainment gap, um, which happens sometimes along lines, often along racial lines, uh, very often along language lines, if English is a second language and you're being assessed in terms of your acquisition and fluency in English in an essay form, there is often an attainment gap. And it's a problem that we've had to think about in very serious ways. And I wonder whether chat GPT might be a solution to some of those problems in some ways. Oh, the opposite. The exact no, we, opposite. okay. Tell it, me. Because Stephen. like what I mean, like all of these technological leaps, it's going to favor people who have access to them, right? And people who can manipulate networks better. Right. Like what will be what it would become a metric of is not your voice, but actually or your, you know, let's say your capacity to mimic, let's take in the English context of a certain class structure of language, right? The the ability to mimic that was a certain trick that you had to master to enter, you know, whatever, Oxford, Cambridge, and so on like that. This will just, you know, you will get a machine that can do that, but the trick is you'll have to be able to figure out the machine, right? And you'll have to have access to the machine. And of course, they're going to charge for access to the machine. This is not Google. It's not going to be free. Um, like you're going, so it's going to require that just as the same way as any of these processes that claim to democratize anything actually lead to huge spikes in inequality. Also, it's worth remembering there's no solution to this, so nobody talks about it. But like these language models are like deeply racist, and like they carry the they carry the whole weight of. I mean, racist. I don't think is actually even the problem. They just carry the whole weight of all of the prejudice that's contained in language. They don't have opinions. They 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 just come out of language, right? And so our language is very based on gender, class, race, all of it. All of those are baked in, in a fundamental way that we can never, you know, as much as we try, we're never actually going to exculpate any of those tensions, right? So the idea that like poor kids are going to use this to, to get an edge, like, no, it'll be like every other tech. The rich kids will use it to get an edge over the poor kids. Yeah, that's really interesting to, to hear your prognostication about that.
Did you know that wherever you are in the world, you can stream live Intelligence Squared debates and discussions? We've just launched a new online streaming service called Intelligence Squared Plus, where you can tune in to all our upcoming events, ask your questions, vote on motions, and also watch back all our previous events on demand wherever you want. The usual price is $14.99 a month, but for you, our podcast listeners, for just 10 days, we've got a special introductory offer of £10 per month. Visit intelligencesquareplus.com or click the link in our description and use the code MONTH10 or ANNUAL10 to start watching. Offer ends at midnight GMT on Tuesday 20th of December, so subscribe today and don't miss out. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It's been reported that the the widely used plagiarism checker Turnitin is unable to detect work that's been produced by ChatGPT. It can usually detect wholesale lifted quotations from Google or whatever, and students' essays flash up with a percentage of plagiarism, which rings alarm bells for the appropriate tutors. But ChatGPT seems to be escaping Turnitin's detection. So does that mean... An organization like OpenAI have, does it mean that OpenAI have a responsibility to be transparent about what they're working on and what they've developed before unleashing it on the world? The reason ChatGPT is taking over the world is that OpenAI has been very responsible for it, to it. Like what it is, it's very channeled language, right? Like it's not, it is a, there were versions of this before, like Replica, which was a, uh, a, a therapist that it, with very little manipulation, you could get it to convince you to commit suicide, right? They've done a very good job of providing pretty good guardrails with this stuff. So, I mean, I think they deserve some credit. I think they're really trying to be as responsible as possible. And, you know, they do, there are some, there are some talk of them, um, 
marching GPT chat GPT text so that it can be it will register as plagiarism if you check with them. Right. And teachers can do that. Also, you know, there's absolutely um, algorithms that can determine uh, whether a text is AI generated. That's a business for like someone's building right now, I bet. Right. Like and I bet every university will have to buy it in six months or whatever or whenever they decide this is a serious enough problem that they're going to have to pay some money for it. So there are solutions like that. But it's to me, only an idiot student would just have it generate the whole thing. Right. Like that's not like what you do is you use a bit then you change a bit, you change it like you use it as a base. What you don't have to do with this stuff is the first draft. And of course, the first draft is the the hardest, hardest bit of any creative project. Right. And so, like, I don't think like what you're going to have is not like the actual output of GPT-3 being handed in. I think that'll be for the dumb kids. It'll be easy to catch. I think it's like the people who use this as a creative tool, like a thesaurus, like something like that, that's going to be impossible to catch because it will not be text that has existed before or strictly automated text either. And you've automated out the hardest part of the writing process. But when you said the words first draft, I shuddered. The essayist in me is horrified of it. You were talking about your own writing practice changing so so well not me i mean you know i'm like an i'm like a dinosaur at this point i use <laughs> but, pens but i mean we are all terrified of the first draft is this the end yeah. of writer's block because you know we will just type into chat gpt our requirements and then there's a first draft that we can chisel away at like one of the yeah, but sisters. you know i mean the thing that you have to remember like i think this is so important it's so hard for because of the movies because we've been because our discourse is so about artificial intelligence is so bad right and even the term we use for it is so poor like artificial intelligence like this is just text prediction right it doesn't have intention it doesn't have will and a good essay is an act of will above all right like it like it, it's an act of like i want to say this i need to say this you need to hear this. And that process, you can't automate that. So like if for me, like when I'm writing an essay, like the essay I wrote for ChatGPT3, if I were to say write an essay about ChatGPT3, it would give me something very filler. But, you know, would it, it would not, I don't think it would ever go viral. You know, like it, like it would, like it would, because it would not, it would not be new, right? It, it, it's the exact opposite. It would not be new. So this is a tool that we're trying to figure out. I mean, to me, it's like the invention of the turntable, and now we're going to have to figure out how hip-hop works, right? Like what we can do with it creatively, what we can do with it aesthetically. I I do think like basic forms of writing, filler writing uh, is going to be damaged, but like, 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 or it's just going to be automated. But like, I don't think that's the end of writing at all. When, when you when you described um, the characteristics of good writing as intention and will, and bearing in mind how persuaded you are by the future of ChatGPT, how good a dupe is it? In, could you read something and believe that this piece of work by an, an imaginary writer had intention and will? H- how good a dupe is it? Oh, I mean, uh, well, look. The piece I wrote for The Atlantic three months ago called uh, Gods and Machines, where it was about this stuff before ChatGPT3, right? Before ChatGPT, it was about GPT3 and like the different models that I was seeing and particularly Cohere, which I actually think nobody talks about, but is like 
every bit as fascinating. And Jasper AI, which is, you know, has a whole suite of tools that you can use on this stuff. This is just the one that's caught the public imagination, right? Um, but like, you know, in that piece, like in the third section, I just had a whole auto-generated text, right? Like they were generated by a machine. And then at the end of the piece, I say, by the way, this was generated by a machine. And certainly no editor stopped it, right? Like no editor said, what's going on here? Like it absolutely, it was not what I believed, but it was like, you would certainly think, oh, that's an Atlantic article. And that was generated just off me having text prediction from like a thousand words of text. But how do right? you feel about that, about Stephen Marsh being a voice that can be replicated by, by AI like that? Well, I'm, I'm diving head first into this. I mean, I love this. I, I mean, I think we're at the beginning of a new medium. I think we're at the beginning of a new form of art. And I, I love the essay. I, I, and I don't think it's going to make the essay worse. What The thing this is really going to damage is the people this is really going to damage. It, it's sort of like with art design. It's like the people who used to cut out pictures and paste them into newspaper fronts and then mail them to printers. Like those people aren't going to exist anymore. But designers, like people who want to use this text to build beautiful things – I mean, that's just going to be explosive. And like, I, I, I mean, I'm all in, like, I really, I, um, I love this stuff very deeply and I think it's incredibly powerful. And, you know, I think our technophobia about it is really because we were so punished by social media and our faith in social media, which was so betrayed, like, which is disaster for everyone. And we, and of course all the fraud that's coming out of Silicon Valley, like a, like a factory, like we've become sort of technophobic. We don't, we can't see how beautiful this is. Also, you know, the engineers don't know what the hell they're doing, right? Like, because they have no humanistic education, they don't, they, they don't know anything at all about what, about the language that they're altering. I mean, I had a meeting the other day where I'm talking to a, a, a an engineer at a text to image generator. And he's like, by the way, you know, we had this way, we figured out this way of like, conjuring characters like you would speak a character and then it would create a 3d image of them that we could project on a wall do you think there'd ever be any uh, creative application for that i was like wow. yeah yeah i think <laughs> i think i could think of a couple well, that might work I, for that well you we have been I mean? very anxious about the deep fakes of of yeah. in political context right of the 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 vo the, vo the vocal fakes uh, the, vo the voice fakes audio fakes of politicians in particular, that's been a, a, an object of real political concern. Could this sort of technology be mobilized for nefarious political ends? Could, could we have- Oh my God. I mean, OpenAI is one user agreement that they make you, like the only thing that they make you sign when you use it is that it will not be used for politics. Right. right? They, 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 I mean, they are more than well aware that, yeah, once this gets used, but you know, I think we're we're about to enter a place where- much like the early internet, when you see something, you automatically disbelieve it. And it's only like, and, and you're like the, the credibility of a source, the, the, the power of fact checking, like one thing that is going to, I believe is going to explode in, I, I don't know. I don't like to make these big predictions, but the more I look at it, the more, the more I see like how people are using this stuff, it's like they use it and then they're like, well, is what it says true, right? Like if you, if you use chat GPT to produce some text, it could just be a hallucination. Like it could have no validity of any kind, right? And like then you have to go like immediately after you conjure these paragraphs up, you have to go and check if they're even moderately accurate, right? And that process, the fact-checking process, the 
the academic model that I learned, like doing historiography, historiographical work on Shakespeare, like that's going to be very, very relevant to like ordinary people, right? Who are, who are using this in like it, a, a new skill set is going to be emerge and fact checking is going to be at the forefront. Fact checking. Yeah, that's yeah. that's really interesting. So you mentioned earlier the humanities education or lack thereof in among well, who we might call tech bros, I guess. Sam, Sam oh, don't call them tech free. bros. I, I mean, I don't want to. I like these guys. You know, you like I really guys. do like these. I do like these guys. I've, it's I've people you know, they're so much better than literary people. Silicon There's so Valley much less cliquey. Okay, yeah. I I, t I take yeah. your your word for it, but let me mention someone who might fairly be classified a tech bro. I think who is Sam Bankman-Fried, uh, founder of the recently defunct cryptocurrency exchange and crypto hedge fund FTX, and he said in an interview that he's very skeptical about books. I don't want to say no book is ever worth reading, but I actually do believe something pretty close to that. I mean. Are you concerned that the the world uh, that the world view of tech moguls is shaping our society, and they may be averse to the humanities, to books? Well, I mean, as I said in the piece, like the social media era was an era where society and history were changed by people who had no understanding whatsoever of society and history. And I mean, I do find it fascinating how these these guys kind of assume that like humanistic questions are just like, they're just a matter of opinion. They're what you talk about over coffee when you're when, in between talking about serious questions. And that goes for even guys that I really like, right? Like some of these engineers are like, I, I mean, they're really fun to deal with and they're super, they're so optimistic and they're building things and they don't, they're not cliquey like literary people. I mean, they're so much nicer in so many ways. But, you know, they don't really – they think that, like, comedy and free speech, like, like a question like that is just everyone's entitled to their opinion. And it's like, well, actually, that's a very lengthy historical debate that has, you know, roots in 16th century, you know, in early authority, authority of text predictions in the 17th century. You really need a historical grounding to have a really meaningful understanding of, of how to think through it. And, they, and it gets them into trouble every time. Treating very complicated problems um, as simple just because they're humanistic is a recipe for disaster. And I mean, it's not just FTX, bro. It's like, like Elon Musk on Twitter is like a classic thing. It's like you just don't – you just don't – like if you read a couple of books about this and, and talked to a couple of people, you would know that you know there's a bunch of things to think about here. Well, we, we, we've run out of time, but let me ask you maybe to recommend a few things for us to read. If we want to think a bit more about the schism that you're describing between the humanities and humanists and technology, what should we read? What's going to help us? Well, I mean, you know, sadly, the big books are, the old ones are still true, like C.P. Snow, The Two Cultures, but also The Postmodern Condition, Leotard, right? Where, like, you know, where he says that there's this divide between performative technologies and and grand meta narratives of the humanities. And that's, I mean, that's still largely true, but I mean, I would love what I think everyone should do really is just go and use some of these large language models and go fool around with them and, and see what you can do. Cause I mean, I think, I think there's going to be a whole explosion of experiments, both scholarly and literary that are going to be, um, you know, fabulous. And I feel a bit alone. I've been alone with this stuff for a long time, but I, I like I'm I, I want to see what other people want to do with it for sure. 
I want to see what you're going to do. Have you got a working title for the next novel written with ChatGPT, Stephen? No, I don't think <laughs> I, I... I would never write a novel with, with ChatGPT3. But I mean, I've written a short story that's all prompts, right? Prompt Gollum. And I'm I'm still looking for a home for it, but I will find one. But there, there's... um. I don't necessarily think it'll be novels. I think it'll be things like, you know, I've been talks to do a reconstruction of the Epic of Gilgamesh with, um, with AI, like the, 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 where it's like, you know, you can use artificial intelligence to recalibrate texts, recalibrate these ancient texts. There's like, there's Shakespeare chatbots. Like, I mean, I've already seen a couple of them, but you know, the new ones are going to be unbelievable, right? You're yeah. going to be able to have a meaningful conversation with Shakespeare. I right. thought you were going to say that the title should be a portrait of the young chat GPT as a young megabyte, something like portrait that. Portrait of the artist as a young machine. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> a Thank portrait so of the much. artist as a nascent technology. That's, <laughs> that's not that, that's not that bad. We'll await it with bated breath. Thank you so much, Stephen. My pleasure. Thank you. That was Stephen Marsh. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared with me, Shahid Abari. Thanks for joining us. 